Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. a time in which coercion has become endemic in public health policy and threatens to corrupt medical ethics. Efforts to combat the pandemic exacerbated this trend, but it did not start with COVID. For years, the medical establishment has been at war with medical conscience, that is, supporting policies that would force doctors to be complicit in requested legal procedures such as abortion, assisted suicide, and transgender transition interventions even when they have religious objections or don't wish to participate because they accept the maxims of the Hippocratic Oath. Catholic hospitals are also under unprecedented threat to force these important institutions to adopt the ethics of secular medicine. In short, the divisions that have roiled society are now corrupting the cohesion of our medical sector. As this episode is being recorded, my guest is in the epicenter of these increasingly bitter disputes. Dr. Aaron Carity is professor of psychiatry at UC Irvine School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health. He serves as chairman of the medical ethics committee at UCI Hospital and at the California Department of State Hospitals. Or at least he does now. He is in danger of losing his positions for reasons we will discuss as this interview progresses. Dr. Carity graduated from the University of Notre Dame in philosophy and pre-medical sciences, earned his MD degree from Georgetown University, and completed residency training in psychiatry at UCI. He has authored books and articles for professional and lay audiences on bioethics, social science, psychiatry, and religion. His work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Public Discourse, and First Things. Dr. Carity has received several excellence in teaching awards, most recently for the 2018-2019 academic year. He is also director of the program in Health and Human Flourishing at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California, and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. If I read his full curriculum vitae, we wouldn't have time for our conversation. Dr. Carity, welcome to Humanize. Thank you, Wesley. It's great to be with you. Good to have you. It takes many years and a lot of hard work to become a psychiatrist. What attracted you to a medical career in general and to psychiatry in specific? Well, I was attracted to medicine probably from an early age. I was considering it. I fell in love as an undergraduate at Notre Dame with philosophy as well. That ended up being my double major philosophy in pre-med. 
And I went back and forth between med school and an academic career in philosophy and ethics. And my then girlfriend, now wife suggested, well, if you do philosophy, you'll probably only be focused on philosophy. Whereas if you do medicine, uh, you can do medical ethics and clinical medicine and then have a foot in both worlds. And it turned out to be very sage advice. And that's exactly how my career has progressed. When I went to med school, Wesley, I didn't have a particular specialty in mind. But as I started doing clinical rotations, the field of psychiatry just grabbed my attention immediately. And in retrospect, now I can see that I had early interests going back as far as high school in uh, the psychological sciences. And so, you know, it made sense that this fit um, kind of worked for me. It's a, <clears throat> it's a discipline within medicine. It's a specialty, I think, that tends to uh, take a more holistic approach to human health and human flourishing, because we're thinking about um, the health of not just the physical body, but the mental health of the individual as well and the behavioral um, health. And I think it's also a specialty that requires a level of abstract thought that might not be um, you know, conducive to a field like pathology. So, um, so it, it jived with my interest in, in philosophy as well. And it's, it's turned out to be a wonderful way for me to, in my, in my professional life, um, engage all of those interests and really dive deeply into the, into the lives of my, of my patients. How does psychiatry differ from psychology and what are some of the treatment mechanisms you use as a psychiatrist? So psychiatry is a specialty within medicine. So psychiatrists do four years of medical school, like other physicians. And then we do four years of residency training specifically within psychiatry to get board certified in, in that discipline. And whereas a psychologist will get the, the equivalent of a PhD or a clinical degree called a PsyD, um, which trains them in um, the psychological sciences and psychological research, and also clinical psychotherapy, talk therapy. Psychiatrists get training in those areas as well, but because of our medical background and our medical license, uh, in addition to doing psychotherapy and offering those forms of treatment, we can offer other medical interventions, medications being the most obvious example of that. But there are now also other medical procedures in psychiatry. Uh, electroconvulsive therapy is still used in psychiatry and, and new modalities uh, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, working with neurosurgeons um, who do uh, deep brain stimulation for psychiatric indications. These kinds of medical interventions are things that psychiatrists can offer to folks that are suffering from a mental illness. It, so it, it seems to me the training is sort of, uh, you know, research based and, and therapy based versus um, medically based, I guess would be the basic distinction. For reasons I'll get into, it, it would seem to me that um, the relationship with your patients would become quite intimate in that kind of a field. That's right. It is. Um, I have Patients that come to me for short-term treatments, but also patients dealing with chronic conditions um, for which I, I've seen them for years. I, I have a few patients that I've seen since my residency training days, which were you know, 14 years ago. And that's a great privilege um, to be able to see a patient on an ongoing basis every week or every month 
uh, for a longer period of time than most physicians get with their patients. I, I see most of my patients for hour-long visits, um, which is a luxury, I would say, in today's medical world where there's a kind of model of uh, what some have called turnstile medicine, you know, cr- cranking large volumes of patients through the clinic. It's possible within psychiatry um, you know, you may not make as much money doing this, but it's it's still possible to be an old-fashioned psychiatrist where I can I can sit with my patients for an hour a week if that's what they need and um, accompany them through their life challenges, through their difficulties with their addiction or um, or their mood disorder or their trauma. and um, and I, I I've been so encouraged by, my patients by the courage that they show in the face of great difficulties in life, uh, their resilience in the face of adversity. And I think if I was in another branch of medicine, I wouldn't have those kinds of opportunities to accompany uh, my patients in, in quite the same way. You're also a professor. Are you tenured? I am a full professor. I am not tenured because most of the clinical faculty at the University of California are, are not granted tenure. I see. Um, and that's just how this system is set up there. So um, most of the physicians there are not in a tenure track. We're in a health sciences track. Which leaves you vulnerable if you get on the wrong side of administration. It does. <laughs> um, and I would suggest even those folks that are tenured are not entirely uh, protected these days. Tenure does not offer the same kind of security uh, that it once did. And there, there have been cases of uh, professors that get on the wrong side of the administration um, because of their ideas or because of things that they say in public. Um, and there there are ways now even to get around uh, the protection of tenure, which 10 to 20 years ago would have seemed impossible. Tell us just a little bit, and then we'll get into the meat of the interview, um, about your teaching responsibilities. So <clears throat> I direct the um, psychiatry clerkship for third-year medical students. All the students have to rotate on psychiatry for six weeks. That gives me the opportunity to accompany them through their clinical clerkship. That, that's all, um, all it, medical students or just those? who All medical students, okay. yeah. So they, they do a six-week rotation. And, um, you know, so we have eight rotations per academic year. And so I get to see all the third years as they rotate through psychiatry. I do some lecture-based teaching, seminar-based teaching for them. But most importantly, clinical supervision. Uh, I supervise residents in their clinics. So I have two half-day clinics where I'm teaching psychiatry residents in our uh, in our outpatient clinics. I also teach the required course for first and second year medical students in uh, medical ethics and in behavioral science. So um, right now, I, teaching is, is one of the things that I'm missing the most. Uh, we'll talk about maybe a little later, but the university has placed me on on leave as of last Friday. And uh, I I think I could be wrong about this, but I believe that I am the only faculty member at the UCI School of Medicine that directs a course in all four years of the medical school curriculum. So I direct the ethics and behavioral science courses in the first and second year. I direct the clerkship uh, in psychiatry in the third year, and I direct the psychiatry electives that the fourth year students can take. So it's it's a great privilege for me to be able to accompany and watch uh, the students in the School of Medicine 
progress through all four years of their training and to be able to teach literally all of them uh, during all four years and, is uh, is really a great privilege. And tell us a bit about your work as chairman of the Ethics Committee. I'm getting into this because I think it's important for mm -hmm. us to understand that um, having you absent from the university now is is a, a great uh, hardship, not only to you, but I think to your students and to your patients. And we'll get into that. But tell us about your work uh, as a chairman of the Ethics Committee. So what I just described, my work in psychiatry is about 60% of my time. The other 40% is I serve as the director of the medical ethics program. And the biggest responsibility with that is chairing our ethics committee for the hospital and directing our 24 seven uh, ethics consultation service. So that's the service that folks reach out to when they're, when they're facing a difficult uh, decision that may have ethical or legal implications. So anyone at the hospital can call an ethics consult. Most of our consults come from physicians in the hospital, but some of them come from nurses. Some of them come from patients or family members of patients. And so we, we get involved in some of the most thorny and challenging cases that, um, that are being dealt with in the hospital. And in that capacity, COVID has been uh, a major challenge for us um, in my work as, as the, the primary ethics consultant on most of those cases, I've had more conversations than I can count uh, having to tell family members that their loved one in our ICU is irretrievably, irretrievably dying of COVID, um, that uh, the, the disease has, has advanced too far for them to recover. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen the worst that this illness can do. Um, I've consulted on those patients as an ethics consultant. I've consulted on patients on the wards with COVID as a psychiatric consultant in the emergency department, uh, on the medicine and surgical floors, and in the ICU. And um, and that, that work uh, is very important to me. And I think it's important to my colleagues to have someone that they know and trust that they can reach out to when they're facing difficult uh, ethical just, decisions. Just as an example, um, helping a family decide whether to cease uh, intensive care, this kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? That's exactly right. That would be a textbook example of uh, the kind of cases that we deal with frequently. So probably um, our most frequent type of ethics consult would be an end-of-life case where there is a difficult decision to be made about continuing uh interventions that might potentially be life prolonging, but that come with considerable burdens or potential harms and walking with uh, the treatment team and the patient and the family members who are struggling with those kinds of decisions is uh, kind of textbook bread and butter, uh, what we do on the ethics committee and the ethics consult service. And what is the program in health and human flourishing? So that's a program at an independent research institute called the Zephyr Institute up in Palo Alto. And <clears throat> through that program, I've been uh, doing a couple of projects. The, the first one, the one that's been going for the longest, um, is a mentoring project for medical students and residents and early career physicians in uh, bioethics. So we meet twice a month on Zoom 
and discuss bioethics cases, discuss bioethics articles. And that's built up into a really wonderful community of uh, young up and coming physicians and physicians in training. And we have a couple of um, researchers and uh, medical research scholars in the group as well. But that's international. We have folks, a lot of folks from California, a lot of folks from University of California, but we have people from all over the country. We've got several uh, people in Canada that attend regularly. We've got one in the Philippines. And so that's become a, a really nice community where uh, these young physicians in training uh, get to know one another um, and meet and, and uh, connect with other like-minded students who are, who are committed to uh, what you might call Hippocratic medicine, a paradigm of medicine that's aimed always on and only at the health of the individual patient. And that would, um, that would uh, steer away from any interventions that are not conducive to, to health and human flourishing. Such as assisted suicide. So yeah, that would be yeah. a, that would be, <laughs> that would be the classic example. Um, sort of the issue that, um, helped get that group going initially i was involved in those debates in california as was i uh, back in back in 2015 as were you and that's where we met several uh, of our so you know aaron and friends. i know each other yeah uh, you know we're not we don't see each other <laughs> very often but we're certainly aware of each other's work and uh, we we got acquainted because of our mutual interest in trying to stop assisted suicide uh, let, let's talk about um we're talking about this this uh episode of Humanize is about coercion and medicine. So let's talk about the vaccine mandates. It seems to me there are three tribes uh, in our divided country with regard to vaccine mandates. One is pro-vaccine, pro-mandate. I've gotten the jab and you're going to get it too, period. No exceptions except perhaps with with, uh, health uh, concerns. The second is I'm not taking a jab and you can't make me. The uh, anti-jab, anti-vaccine, anti-mandate. Then there's my tribe. I'm pro-vaccine. I, I believe they've saved lives. I've, I've been ex- inoculated. I received the Moderna. I, I, but I did that in consultation with my doctor. And nobody forced me. It was my decision. And it's a decision I'm proud of. But I'm anti-mandate because I think that mandates uh, not only uh, cause more harm than good in the sense of breeding distrust and uh, um causing people to uh, be divided with each other in a time of an emergency. But also, it's just not the appropriate American way. Um, are, are you in those any of those tribes, or is there a fourth tribe that I'm not aware of? <laughs> <laughs> so I, if I had to put myself in one of those three, I would certainly be in the same tribe as you, and I can expand upon that answer a little bit. So I am likewise... Um, in favor of the right vaccine for the right population under the right circumstances. And so when people ask me, are you, are you pro-vax or anti-vax? Um, you know, the question of whether I'm anti-vax is, it feels sort of like asking me, are you pro-medication or anti-medication? Right. My answer to that can only be which medication for which patient or which patient population under what circumstances? Are you pro-appendectomy you know, or anti-appendectomy? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. So in terms of these vaccines, um, just so that I'm not dodging your question, I was on the committee that drafted the vaccine policy uh, for allocating vaccines in the early days when they were scarce to people within the university. 
I am on the Orange County Vaccine Task Force. And uh, on that task force, I have advocated very publicly, including in the Los Angeles Times, that, um, that people with disabilities, that poor, uninsured, underinsured be given adequate access to these COVID vaccines and not be bumped down the list of priority uh, when in the early days of the vaccine rollout, the demand was outstripping the supply of vaccines. So I've been a champion of access to these vaccines, but I've also been a champion, I, I hope, of informed consent. Uh, that's important. That, that, of, let's, let's stop here, informed consent. That's yeah. a really important part of what we're talking about. Explain um, what that means in, in lay people's language uh, so that uh, we understand how important that is in medical ethics and healthcare. Right. So the doctrine of informed consent is probably among the most central principles of modern bioethics. And what it means is that before a physician can do something to you, a procedure, a medical intervention, a medication, they're required to discuss with you and to explain to you the risks, benefits, and alternatives to that treatment. And you have, have the right to consent or refuse that intervention without any undue coercion, right? And this doctrine was articulated strongly in the Nuremberg Code in the 1940s. Uh, following World War II, we saw the atrocities of the Nazi physicians uh, during uh, during the war in the, in the death camps, in the, uh, the, the horrifying medical experiments that were conducted there. And the world reacted strongly to that. Th this is a human rights protection as a human rights protection. That was expanded in the Helsinki Declaration a couple of decades later, uh, a major landmark document published by the World Medical Associ Association. It was reaffirmed in the 1970s. Uh, the first US uh, Public Bioethics Commission published something called the Belmont Report, which is gonna be familiar to people in bioethics, uh, articulating the, the principle of respect for persons or what is now sometimes called respect for autonomy. So this idea of informed consent is at the center of major developments in 20th century bioethics. And it seems to me that with these COVID vaccines, informed consent is absolutely crucial, that I have the right to know the risks, benefits, and alternatives, if there are any, before I accept or refuse this vaccine. Now, there's, there's an argument out there that we can bypass informed consent because by refusing a vaccine, I'm not just taking on risk for myself, but I may be putting other people at risk. And my response to that in the case of these vaccines is that that argument would have some, some force and maybe more persuasion for certain types of vaccines that offer what's called sterilizing immunity. Sterilizing immunity means the vaccine doesn't just lower my risk of getting severe symptoms or hospitalization, which these vaccines do. And I've said that and reaffirmed that finding from the beginning. But it also prevents me from getting infected, prevents me from getting an asymptomatic infection or a mild infection and transmitting that infection, infection to another person. And one thing that the current COVID vaccines cannot do is that they cannot prevent infection and transmission. Uh, the CDC has acknowledged that very clearly and, and more and more data continues to reaffirm uh, that the vaccines offer some protection against severe disease and hospitalization for the individual recipient, 
but they don't uh, necessarily stop or slow the spread uh, of, of COVID, unfortunately. And given that empirical fact, it seems to me that we need to fall back on this uh, central principle of clinical ethics of informed consent, that the, that the risks and benefits of vaccination with these COVID vaccines fall pr- primarily on the recipient of the vaccine. So the argument, do it for the sake of other people, has lost a lot of its force. Maybe that will change down the road with a new vaccine. That's possible. I don't know. But in terms of where we're at now, uh, these these vaccine mandates uh, strike me as, as highly unethical because they bypass uh, that process of informed consent and they put enormous pressure on individuals that would never be accepted in, in another clinical context or another research context, the threat of losing my job, Mm -hmm. uh, the threat of losing my livelihood, uh, the the threat of potentially not being able to travel and and see my family or access basic public services like going to restaurants and so forth. Uh, That level of coercion, I find staggering and terrifying. And since I've put a stake in the ground on this issue publicly, I've received, Wesley, just a, a flood of communication from people who, who are in great distress and feel that their conscience um, is, is being trampled upon, uh, their rights of informed refusal are being ignored. Um, I saw a patient recently, when a patient I've been seeing for a long time, um, she was going back and forth on the vaccine. She's young and healthy and had some concern about um, adverse effects. Uh, I didn't advise her. I've never advised anyone not to get the vaccine. Um, but I, uh, I I helped her kind of weigh the pros and cons and think through the decision. In the end, she ended up um, under the threat of losing her job uh, working for a, a, a medical clinic. Uh, she ended up getting vaccinated. And, um, and, and most recently she sort of, she sort of come to realize, Hmm, that left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, and I'm not sure I want to continue working for someone who's going to force something like this upon me. And I think there are a lot of people in, in that, in that same position, Wesley, that you described pro vaccine, but anti-mandate who, um, Others have told me, you know, Dr. Cariotti, I appreciate what you're doing very much. Uh, I got the vaccine, but it was a difficult decision for me. I I feel, you know, unlike the patient I just described, others have said, I feel that this was the right decision. I'm totally convinced that I made the right decision for me. But I would have wanted the option of declining if that's the decision that I came, came to. It's not the decision that I came to, but I could see how another person, reasonable person looking at the medical data, looking at their individual risk and benefit profile might come to that decision. And I would want that to be respected. for I worry a little bit about two things. Number one, I worry that the vaccine mandate is becoming something of a moral panic. That is, uh, it it is beyond, it's about things beyond the vaccine. Uh, Almost like this is a way you prove that you're part of the civil society. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that's the point and purpose of any medication. Secondly, and this is where you get really caught up in the, uh, 
jaws of <laughs> litigation, it lacks nuance because people who have had COVID and recovered from it have natural antibodies. And the question then becomes, if you've had COVID, you've recovered from COVID, the blood tests show that you have antibodies and have significant resistance to it, why should you be forced to receive uh, substances into your body that you don't wish? And I believe that's where you uh, decided you were going to draw a line in the sand. Tell us about that. Yeah, you're exactly right. So my particular uh, legal case, and I have filed a lawsuit uh, against both my employer, the University of California, and against the state of California Department of Public Health, because I am subject to two vaccine mandates. I'm sub subjected to the UC mandate as a faculty member at the university, and I'm subjected to the state of California's mandate uh, as a healthcare worker. So a twin lawsuits making the same argument on behalf of COVID recovered individuals who have infection induced immunity or is more often called natural immunity to COVID. And what we know now, looking at the research on natural immunity is that natural immunity is more effective and longer lasting. It doesn't wane over time as far as we could tell. Um, Realizing that this is still a very new disease, so uh, there's only limited time factor with regard to that. That yeah, with all those caveats, but we do know that vaccine-induced immunity is declining with time and new variants. It's holding up pretty well against hospitalization and severe disease, uh, but efficacy against infection. Uh, and you know the possibility of slowing the spread has has certainly declined starts to decline after about 4 months that's not to denigrate the vaccines in any way but it's just to say i have one form of immunity that is in my legal case i argue equal to and indeed superior to but for the sake of my legal argument it just needs to be equal to but in fact the empirical evidence shows that it's superior to the immunity conferred by the vaccine and yet someone who got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, who has, which has, according to J&J's own data submitted for uh, EUA to the FDA, uh, is 67% effective. That person is allowed back on campus. They can teach. Uh, they can be back in the clinics treating patients. Whereas my infection-induced immunity, which is 99% effective and has not waned over time, um, is excluded from being on which campus. is so, evidence of my hypothesis that this is a moral panic and involves exactly. much more than just resisting the disease exactly if this was about immunity natural immunity would count every bit as much as vaccine mediated immunity uh and i i think this i i think you're exactly right this does support your hypothesis that this is about more than just this virus or more than just this pandemic it's about um it's about getting people to engage in a particular behavior uh that authorities want them to engage in in this case getting getting vaccinated so my case is in federal court it's a constitutional case so i argue that this is a violation of my rights and the rights of other people that are similarly situated under the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment um so that's the that's the short version of 
my legal action. I've got a couple of other um, legal steps that I'm taking to try to help with this issue of informed consent. I've, uh, along with several other physicians and scientists and journalists, I've recently filed a Freedom of Information Act request to the FDA to get all of the the data on which the FDA authorization was based. Now that that product is fully authorized by the FDA, the Pfizer vaccine, um, the federal law requires that the the data, the information that Pfizer submitted be made public. So I think it's important that that information be made public. And it's also very very interesting. I mean, we're recording this on October 7th, that Humana, I'm sorry, that the Moderna vaccine um, has a different outcome potentially than the Pfizer. There has not been, Pfizer has been authorized for what they call a booster shot, a third shot in some cases, not all cases yet. Moderna doesn't have any of that yet. Uh, Johnson and Johnson, as you said, has less efficacy. There are different safety issues for the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccine than for the J and J vaccine, uh, which is all part of, should be part of the informed consent aspect. Now- exactly, exactly. I mean, a lot of folks don't even know that there are three different vaccines, uh, two different mechanisms of action, different risk and benefit and safety and efficacy profiles for the three different vaccines, different dosages, I mean, just exactly uh, totally different things. And which again is part of the lack of nuance. And, and then you, you sought a, an injunction, as I recall, Mm -hmm. um, against being, uh, terminated, uh, because you, while you pursued your case, and the first uh, go round to have a temporary restraining order in place failed, uh, and and you're going forward. And very quickly thereafter, you received a letter from UC Irvine suspending you, which you mentioned earlier in the uh, discussion, uh, from all of your clinical duties with pay. Now you have a Substack that uh, you write called Human Flourishing for for uh, listeners who may want to uh, look for that, and. You said that this is this does a couple of things. Number one, it it keeps you from, except if you have an illness or something, even going on the property of 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 the hospital and the and the campus. Secondly, it keeps you from treating your patients because your patients, as you said in the Substack, basically um, they come through the UCI system. Uh, it's not a private practice. That uh, that you have in addition to uh, your your teaching work and your your uh, other work with the university, and therefore that's cutting your income. But what concerns me the most is that the punishment isn't so much to you but your patients. Uh, the reason I I uh, brought some attention earlier to the issue of psychiatry is because this is not like somebody who's had a severe cut on their arm and and they've had one doctor suture them up and now a different doctor's taking out the sutures, uh, which might not be of a concern for most patients. This is psychiatry. This is the most intimate kind of medical treatment that exists. And yet what UCI Irvine has done is said to your patients, sorry, you can't see your psychiatrist because your psychiatrist is not complying with what we want him to do. And I'd like you to address that. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Wesley. Um, that's a good summary of, of what's happened. Um, there is one 
positive update and little silver lining um, that just came about yesterday because my patients did take action. So, um, and I, I want to credit um, my interim department chair. I want to credit my colleagues in the department who are picking up my duties in my absence, um, which is, you know, certainly certainly not their fault. But um, but the, the orders were coming from the top, from the UC office of the president, um, in terms of putting me on on medical leave. And as you said, it's paid medical leave, but half my salary comes from clinical revenues. And my contract doesn't allow me to see patients outside of the university. So I was sort of hamstrung in terms of um, not being able to see my patients at the university. Um, I haven't even been able to go back to my office and retrieve my books or my, my other things. Um, but fortunately, yesterday, um, my department was able to work out an arrangement where I can see my patients via telemedicine uh, this month while I am on leave. and. Uh, so fortunately, my patients are not going to be entirely abandoned. But you're absolutely right; they were they were panicked for several days after they got a call from the clinic canceling all their appointments with me because psychiatrists are not fungible. If exactly. I'm seeing someone for psychotherapy on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, um, just going to see one of my other colleagues in the department is not the same thing. I have terrific colleagues in my department that that has nothing to do with it. It's just that that's a long established therapeutic relationship that you can't just sort of pivot on a dime and replace. So I, I am, you know, in spite of the difficult circumstances, I am very grateful. And my parent, my, my patients who are being starting to be notified yesterday and today are also very grateful that at least they're not going to be Cut yeah, off, but that strikes um, me as a half measure. Suddenly. First off, the administration didn't care about your patients, it seems to me. They did they wanted to get you because you're resisting the moral panic. This is my opinion. Yeah. Secondly, telemedicine isn't the same thing as in-person medicine in psychiatry. <clears throat> it's better than being yeah. cut off, but it's still less than optimal care. That's that's correct. I have several patients that would that would agree um, that are only willing to do the telemedicine if they have to, but uh, it is not the same as a face-to-face encounter. Um, and, you know, even in psychiatry, it's, it's easier in psychiatry because, um, you know, I'm not doing procedures generally in the outpatient setting and, and, you know, I don't need to do a physical exam on, on my patients most of the time, but even then, you know, anyone who's, Anyone who's gone to see a therapist knows that a face-to-face in-person encounter is very different from an encounter over Zoom. Uh, I think you know it's that's not difficult to understand. So, and, and so if I, I agree were, with you. If I were your patient, I would feel less uh, willing to share the most intimate things I might want to say to mm-hmm. you sure. over a live video stream. Sure, and very often they're calling me from home. Or they don't have a private room in their home, so they're sitting in their car just to get some privacy. But you know, they're they're kind of looking over their shoulder, wondering if you know the family member or somebody else is going to walk into the room behind them, or can overhear our conversation through the wall. So that the safety and security of being and, able to and, come and there are so, to my there are solutions is, to this. First off, you could have patients sign waivers saying, "We understand that my doctor does has not been vaccinated." And uh, if we, you know, contract COVID, we're not going to uh, 
blame the, right. the UCI. Secondly, they could say, okay, Aaron, you don't want to be vaccinated. We're going to have you tested twice a week. I think that mm-hmm. that would be something that could be a reasonable well, compromise. But for they, but, they were doing that, Wesley. I was getting the tw- twice a week testing before I was put on leave. So I was compliant with all those measures, the, the masking, the testing, um, really, you know, trying to cooperate as, as much as I Which brings me back to the moral panic. And this is about C-O-N-T-R-O-L, control. And it's uh, it's something that uh, that needs to be, and and I applaud you for dealing with it now because it's not going to stop with COVID if this continues. Right, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the reasons why I think this is so important right now is because of the potential precedent that it's going to set. So people are getting used to things as we speak that two years ago would have been unthinkable. The idea of showing a QR code to to prove that I got a medical intervention that I didn't really want in order to go to a restaurant or get on an airplane or get on a train or access basic goods and, or keep my job is something that um, people are now getting used to. And most people may not have a problem with it because, hey, I wanted to get the vaccine anyway. Yeah, they're part like of tribe-wide pro-vaccine pro-mandate. Pro-vaccine, pro-mandate. But what about the next time when they're using the same infrastructure and the same kinds of mechanisms to try to nudge you or pressure you or even coerce you into something that you don't want to do, right? So it's important to understand the principle of the thing that's being laid out here. That's the point of Even if you agree on this or that, yeah, this or that intervention might be just fine. You were going to do it anyway, so who cares? But it's it's putting in place a kind of biosecurity surveillance regime um, that gives enormous power to uh, institutions and to into uh, into the government um, to use health or to use a sort of health state of emergency or state of exception in order to force all kinds of things and, and, on people and that been, they may or I've may been not doing want. a lot of writing and warning about what I see as a yeah. looming technocracy ruled by experts, yeah. kind of enforced by yeah. a corporatocracy. That is, we're going to have the private sector enforce government desired uh, programs. And you don't, because it's the private sector instead of the, of the government, you don't have the same constitutional protections. You don't have the same democratic involvement requirements. You don't have the check, same checks and balances. The private sector can act completely arbitrarily if that's what they want. And I think that when you have uh, uh, government leaders basically telling the private sector, go out and, and mandate, um, you're, you're actually delegating to the private sector policy enforcement uh, without the protection that uh, we would normally have if the government was trying to have us do this. I think that is exactly right. Um, I agree with what you just described, and I have been following your work on this uh, in this area as well. And I think that vaccine mandates, whether you're pro-vaccine or whatever, are now acting as a kind of fulcrum to move that project forward um, in, in in ways that, again, would never have been possible, feasible, thinkable 
two years ago. And here's an example. I've, I've been noticing stories just in the last couple of days of people who've been waiting years for organ transplants yeah. are suddenly being told, if you don't have the vaccine, you're off the list. I mean, that's, that's, and they, and I saw in one story, well, there's a 20 or 30% chance that somebody who receives the organ uh, could, and gets COVID wouldn't make it, but there's a hundred percent chance they're not going to make it if they're denied the organ. So have you uh, exactly. looked at that and, and do you have an opinion about it? I, I have, and I do. I did an interview last night uh, on the evening news on precisely this issue. So there's a health system in Colorado. Uh, this story just came out yesterday uh, that is doing precisely what you just described. And I mean, this is problematic on so many levels. Some of those folks have a religious um, exemption or objection to these particular vaccines, uh, perhaps because of their connection to um, uh, cell lines that were derived from an aborted fetus. And so in, in trying to uh, uphold that First Amendment constitutional right of um, freedom of religion, uh, they are now facing a situation in which they may lose the opportunity to get an organ. They may have natural and, immunity. And, and we're talking they, life and death here. Exactly. I mean, this exactly. is, this is I mean, really serious stuff. If you're on an organ donor list, it, it's because 100% you're going to die if you don't get an this, organ. This is, a, this is coercion fashion. to the max. I, I've never it seen is. anything quite like it. It is. I, I find it really horrifying. Um, we don't punish people for health-related behaviors by withholding other forms of medical medical care or even organs. I mean, let's say you have a race car driver who's engaged in very high-risk activity, um, you know, driving cars where there are a high number of fatalities. Um, you don't force that person to give up that that profession or that hobby or that avocation in order to to get an organ simply because you know th they may be at high more higher mortality risk than the general population after their transplant if you if you have a health related behavior that's going to make you reject the organ like you know if you say i'm not going to take my immunosuppressive medications or i has, have cirrhosis and i have no intention of stopping my alcohol use when i get the new organ and you know so i'm that that's going to become cirrhotic too that may be a legitimate reason to deprioritize a person on an organ donor list. But that has, those are health-related behaviors directly relevant to whether or not that procedure is going to work, right? That's a different issue than, um, you know, you have to stop high-speed downhill skiing after we give you your organ because, you know, we don't want you to die sometime in the next 10 years, which seems to me to be analogous to the issue of of the COVID vaccination. Yeah, it, it's it's a pretty stunning thing. I'd like to move us, um, uh, because time is fleeting, <laughs> um, beyond the mandates in terms of vaccines to the medical conscience issue. Uh, this to me seems uh, the most important freedom of religion, free exercise of religion issue facing the country. We've heard uh, the stories of the uh, Colorado cake uh, designer, uh, who didn't want to design uh, cakes for purposes that violated his religion. And he won a case at the Supreme Court in a narrow decision. Now there's another case where he's lost it in the uh, Colorado courts. And the florist who didn't want to create a, a floral arrangement for a same-sex marriage kind of thing. I'm not denigrating the importance of, of free exercise in those situations. But what's really, I think, coming and, and pressing is that doctors, nurses, 
uh, pharmacists and others, are going to be forced to participate in procedures that take human life. Uh, We're talking about abortion, which takes a nascent human life. We're talking about potentially assisted suicide, euthanasia, which is happening in places like Canada and Australia, where doctors are forced to participate or refer, meaning finding a doctor they know will do the killing. Have you been paying any attention to this medical conscience issue, and what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, I have been paying attention to this issue. Um, I I share your concerns that... um, that Hippocratic physicians, physicians who want to use their knowledge and skills always and only for the purposes of, of healing, um, never for the purpose of killing, who agree with the American Medical Association's principles of medical ethics uh, that say physicians should not participate in capital punishment, in torture, in assisted suicide, um, may be forced to Um, either engage in or refer for procedures that not only violate their individual conscience, but also violate the core principles of uh, traditional or Hippocratic medical ethics. And it may not even be a religious objection. It may be an objection um, based upon just a clear philosophy of medicine that says doctors shouldn't kill their patients. Um, an ethic that goes all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath, uh, which is, of course, a pre-Christian document, not grounded in Judaism or Christianity or any other uh, world religion. So uh, this is also this is often framed as a religious issue or a First Amendment free exercise issue, and it certainly has implications in that regard. But but I think you're right. Conscience has to be understood as a broader philosophical issue as well, um, because a a person may object to this or that intervention or participating or referring for this or that treatment uh, just because they think it's not sound medicine. Or maybe maybe I'm not opposed in principle, but for this particular patient, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's going to be harmful. And doctors should have the right uh, to recuse themselves uh, from participating in interventions or referring to interventions that they believe are harmful and not helpful. They should be able to do that on religious free exercise grounds. They should also be able to do that on philosophical grounds and on clinical professional judgment for this particular patient type grounds. So this is a major assault on medical ethics and on some of the deepest and most central core principles of uh, the practice of medicine and medical ethics. It's a, it's a very serious um, issue. It's a very serious threat. It, it, and I think folks should be. Concerned. It strikes me that forcing anyone to participate in the taking of an innocent human life. Uh, and we're not talking about a, a member of the military who receives a lawful order to, to kill a, a soldier from a different uh, army. Uh, and we're also not talking because certainly uh, no bioethicist would say any doctor has to participate in an execution, for example, because mm-hmm. bioethics, generally speaking, is against capital punishment. But bioethics, generally speaking, the utilitarian branch, which uh, we don't have time to describe totally, they're very much in favor of abortion. They're very much in favor of assisted suicide. They're very much in favor of 
uh, these transition uh, medical procedures, even with regard to children and puberty blocking and this kind of thing. And you're basically, when you have articles written by very notable bioethicists, such as Ezekiel Emanuel, who was a uh, prime architect of the Affordable Care Act, he's a prime um, advisor to President Biden. When you have him writing in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the most uh, prestigious medical journal in the world, that doctors should provide every legal uh, request of a patient as long as it's not uh, controversial within healthcare, specifically including abortion, then we've got a problem right here in River City. And it, it, it begins to border on the authoritarian, and I use that term uh, with due uh, intention, to force somebody who got into a profession for healing purposes to actually engage in the opposite kinds of behavior. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that's exactly right. I think uh, Ezekiel Emanuel and, and other bioethicists who are advocating uh, for this approach um, are, and, and this may or may not be intentional, I'm not going to attribute motives to anyone, um, but are squeezing a lot of good people out of medicine. I mean, do you really, do you really want a doctor who will not or cannot or is legally prevented from following his conscience and following his best professional medical judgment? I think most patients would say no. I mean, even even if the patient disagrees with the doctor's um, conscience or judgment on a particular issue, they still want a doctor who's going to stand up for her or his principles under pressure. That's the kind of person that you can exactly. trust. Exactly. And here's, a, here's another example of that kind of uh, situation. There are a lot of people who think that circumcision is a form of child abuse. Okay. Now, would, should we say that a pediatrician who believes that circumcision is a form of child abuse, should we force that pediatrician to circumcise a child? No, of course not. And why would a patient want exactly. a doctor to uh, exactly. perform a procedure that the doctor is opposed to? It makes no sense to exactly. me. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm not opposed to that procedure, but I would go to the mat for the physician who doesn't want to perform exactly. it. And I would go to the mat to avoid that person being squeezed out of pediatrics. And again, this is your, this is your little baby son. Do you want the doctor performing this procedure, doing it under duress, under the threat of losing his job or his medical license? Um, is that what you want in the back of this guy's mind as he's doing this procedure on your own child? No, of course not. That doctor should be allowed to recuse himself from that procedure and allow someone else who doesn't have um, a moral issue with it uh, participate. So it's very important that doctors be given discretionary latitude and that doctors not become functionaries of a, a bureaucratic regime where they're basically not exercising their own prudential medical judgment. They're not exercising their own moral judgment and they're just doing what they're told. This is not going to be good for patient care. This is not going to be good for the absolutely necessary public trust. Um, that makes the doctor-patient relationship work. Yeah, I, and and the only thing I would say is, uh, if a doctor, let's say, is in col in oncology and assisted suicide is legal, when you take a patient, you you put a a sign in your 
waiting room. This is an assisted suicide free zone. You let patients know Mm -hmm. that this is something I will not do. And if the patient doesn't want to be with a doctor that refuses, then the patient can find a different doctor uh, because that allows comity and that allows mutual respect. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to run out of Mm -hmm. time, um, but I would like to talk about the attack on Catholic healthcare very briefly. Uh, In California in particular, the UC Health uh, is threatening to disassociate I think starting in 2023 with uh, Catholic hospitals that actually provide care for patients uh, that are covered by UC Health in areas that UC Health doesn't have facilities. So once again, we see, and the reason they're doing this is because Catholic hospitals won't do abortions, Catholic hospitals won't do sterilizations because of the moral teaching of the church. And again, you see that in this attempt to coerce people into a one-size-fits-all morality, the people who are going to be hurt are the patients. That's exactly right. So these are patients on Medi-Cal, California's version of, of Medicaid. These are patients that are uninsured in some cases or underinsured have limited access to specialty and subspecialty care. And because of the uh, affiliation between the University of California and Providence uh, and other Catholic hospital systems in, in California, many of those patients who otherwise would not be able to see a UC specialist can have access to a UC specialist through that collaboration between those two healthcare systems. Catholic hospitals do not demand that the University of California adopt uh, their system of values or their framework for providing healthcare. Um, They respect the autonomy of the university, but the university is not likewise respecting the autonomy of the Catholic healthcare system. And um, by severing that affiliation, first of all, there's there's certain University of, of California uh, medical schools that I'm not sure how they're going to survive if that actually happens. The, the newest UC medical school, UC Riverside, doesn't have its own university hospital. It relies entirely on affiliations with uh, the county hospital, other local hospitals, and a, a very strong affiliation with the Catholic hospitals out there in what we call the Inland Empire around Riverside. That was That medical school was started with support from the state precisely to train physicians and provide care to that underserved area of the state. Now, those underserved folks are not going to, who are in the Catholic healthcare system, or that's where they access their care, are not going to have access to the University of California specialists um, if that uh, severing of that relationship actually goes through. So you're, you're exactly right, Wesley. No, no one's care or access is going to be enhanced by this move, um, it's only going to to be diminished. And in fact, the the ones who are going to be harmed most are those who are uh, most marginalized and have already have the least access to robust healthcare resources. So there's a kind of class war aspect to, I think, a, a lot of what we've been talking about today. And this is certainly, I think, a prime example. That's an interesting point, the class war aspect I hadn't really considered too much. Um, The the, the coercion in healthcare are antithetical, it seems to me. And uh, I I really do worry that the, the point of all of this, in addition, in terms of the, we talked about the other 
motives going on with regard to the vaccine mandates. I think the, the other motives going on with regard to medical conscience is to make sure that a certain segment of the population don't become doctors, that a certain segment of the population don't become nurses, that they don't go to medical school, that they don't go to nursing school, that if they are what is known as a pro-life person, for example, or an Orthodox Catholic or an atheist who believes in the Hippocratic Oath maxims, that uh, they're no longer wanted in, in healthcare because uh, the uh, people who are in charge of the uh, medical intelligence and so forth have a utilitarian worldview. They don't believe in the equality and sanctity of human life. They believe in a quality of life ethic where some lives have greater value than others. And also that there's uh, this idea that, well, whatever a patient wants, a patient should get. Uh, and uh, I, I think that you're basically going to potentially drive one-third to 40% of the population away from the medical professions, and you will have a brain drain of people who already are in the medical professions if they are forced to participate in these kinds of behaviors. Do you, th do you think that I'm paranoid or do you think I'm onto something? I think it's hard to look at what's going on, uh, Wesley, and, and not come to the conclusion uh, that much of this is functioning in in an exclusionary way. Um, and when not only people are barred from, from training or the dissuaded from pursuing a particular career, but, um, but when people are forced out of a particular profession for ideological reasons, it's, it's hard not to begin seeing this as something of a purge. It, it certainly starts to to smell like that. So, um, so I, I don't know that it's necessarily paranoid. Um, we'll have to see how some of these events continue to unfold, but, um, you know, as somebody who's on the receiving end of what happens when you try to challenge a, a particular narrative or try to challenge a particular healthcare policy that your institution has, has adopted, um, and the punishment is is rather swift and severe. Um, you know, I t something something is afoot. I think that is that doesn't have the well being of patients um, and the um, and the the the, the functioning of uh, healthcare providers as its first priority. Yeah. And, and just remember the old maxim, just because you're paranoid, that doesn't mean they're not really after you. <laughs> well, uh, Aaron, exactly. uh, if I may, uh, thank you very much. I'd like to have you back. I, I was going to say what's next for you, but you know, you don't know because this thing is all up in the air. Uh, as yeah. things progress, we'll keep an eye on it. And uh, if uh, I, I'd love to have you back to discuss what's going on further with regard to your case. Thank you for being on Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. I enjoyed it. Happy to come back anytime. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. 
Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.